This morning, our scripture passage is one verse. I invite you to turn to that one verse, the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. As usual, I will be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Uh, That is the black hardcover pew Bible in front of you if you did not bring your own Bibles. John chapter 1, verse 14. I encourage you to follow along as I read the Word of God this morning. The Apostle John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of God for the people of God today. Now, last week, we began a five-week sermon series on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you were with us last Sunday morning, hopefully you remember, our focus last week was on the divine nature, the divine identity of Jesus. Remember, I said that we cannot fully understand the glory of the incarnation, that the Son of God, the eternal God the Son, the Word became flesh. We will never truly understand that event, the significance of the birth of Christ, if we do not first understand who Jesus was for all eternity. And so we began by looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Those verses declared to us the fundamental truths about the one whom John calls the Word. We know the Word is Jesus Christ. First John wrote that in the beginning was the Word. There was never a time, John tells us, when the Word did not exist. The Word is eternal. And then John says that the Word was with God. The Word, Jesus Christ, existed for all eternity in perfect fellowship, in perfect union and communion with God the Father. He was in the beginning. He was with God. John goes on to say then most amazingly and even mysteriously that the Word was God. In doing so, John is telling us that this eternal Word who was with God is none other than the eternally existing second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Here in these opening verses of John's Gospel, we have one of the most succinct statements concerning the truth of the Trinity that is to be found in the sacred Bible. The Word was and is eternal. He was and is in fellowship with the Father. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Word and the Father are two distinct persons. And yet, John says the Word is God. The Word is distinct from the Father, yes, but He is the same in essence or in substance. He is the same in nature as God the Father. As the Father is indeed fully, truly God, so God the Son is indeed truly, fully God. Now, when I say that they are distinct, understand, I think this needs some explanation God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are indeed distinct in their personhood. They are three different persons. 
They are united together forever in the union of the Godhead. All of their works are united. The Spirit, the Son, the Father does nothing which conflicts with the will of the other persons of the triune Godhead. They are distinct in their persons and in their works, but they are indeed united as one God. This is the God we worship and glorify. One God existing eternally as three distinct divine persons, each person being fully God in and of himself, each person being equal in power and glory, each person, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit being worthy of all worship and praise, all three persons existing for all eternity as one divine being, as one God, one God and three persons, blessed Trinity. This is not all that John declares to us in the first five verses of his gospel. This is not the only truth he tells us about concerning the eternally existing Son of God. John goes on then to tell us that the Word, or it is the Word rather, who created all things. All things were made in and through the Word. And it is this eternal God the Son who has and who gives eternal light and life. A light, a life that the darkness could not and will not overcome. And then last Sunday evening, we continued to study the divine identity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We turned our attention to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul records for us an early Christian hymn of praise to God the Son. In this hymn of praise, Paul declares many of the same truths that we heard from John's Gospel. That Jesus is the one who created, who sustains, who rules over all things. He is the eternal God, the Son. He is the preeminent one. But then more than that, Paul also declares to us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That to see Christ, even with eyes of faith, is to see God Himself. And it is this Christ who Paul says made peace, reconciliation between us and the Holy God. And how did Paul say in Colossians 1 that Jesus did this? He said He did it through the blood of the cross. Now, beloved, this last truth that Paul declares to us in Colossians 1, that Jesus made peace by the blood of the cross, it turns our attention to today's great truth about this eternal Word, about God the Son. Because today, John declares to us that the eternal Word did indeed become flesh. We might say He became flesh and blood so that He could make peace between us and the Father. This is our focus this morning. Last week was on the divine identity of Jesus. This week it is on this great mysterious truth that this eternal Word did indeed become flesh. This is the mystery. This is the heart, really, of the Incarnation. The Word becoming flesh, and as John says, dwelling among us. This is what happened, beloved, over 2,000 years ago. This is what happened, not at Jesus' birth in the manger. This is what happened the very moment Christ was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. 
the Word in that moment of conception became flesh. Next Sunday, we'll look more fully at the virgin conception and birth as it is the means through which the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. But today, I want us to consider what it means. What it truly means when John says that the Word became flesh. And then consider what it means that the Word has indeed dwelt among us. Those two statements found in the first part of verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That will be our focus this morning. So first... The Word became flesh. God the Son truly became man. And we need to be careful with this statement, beloved, or at least we need to be careful about how we think, how we understand this statement that the Word became flesh. When you and I use the word become or became, we use it to generally express a transformation. When something or someone becomes something else, we generally express that they ceased to be what they were previously and became something new. A caterpillar, we say it becomes a butterfly. We mean that the caterpillar, in a sense, ceases to exist. It ceases to be what it was and became something new. When a child turns 13, they cease to be a preteen. They are now a teenager. When a man becomes ordained as a minister or an elder, they cease to be a lay member of a church. They become an ordained office holder. When a new president is sworn into office, he ceases to be president-elect and becomes president. But understand, understand this clearly, beloved. This is not how John uses the word became in our text today. When John tells us that the word became flesh, the word did not cease to be who he was prior to him becoming flesh. The word did not cease to be the eternally existing second person of the Godhead, God the Son. He did not stop being divine. In fact, his, divin his divinity was not diminished in any sort of way. He was still fully, completely, truly God. This truth is some something I tried to drill into your minds during our sermon series on the book of Luke, especially as we looked at those early chapters, and I realized that was over two years ago now. So let me take this opportunity this morning, beloved, to drill this truth into your minds again. It's important that you understand this. When the Word became flesh, He did not cease to be God. A lot of professing Christians have this wrong. In the Incarnation, Jesus did not cease to be divine. He did not, as one very well-known version of a very well-known hymn put it, he did not empty himself of all but love. In other words, he did not empty himself of any of his divine attributes. It's a flat-out heresy. He remained fully, truly God. There are many who profess Christ who simply have a terrible Christology. That is a theology, a doctrine of who Jesus is, especially as it concerns the Word of God becoming flesh, as it concerns the Incarnation. Many believe wrongly, even heretically, that Jesus was in His earthly life not fully, truly God, or that He laid aside His divine attributes, 
Or, on the other hand, they believe that he was not truly or fully man. They believe either that Jesus was a human man, but a divine soul, or that Jesus laid aside his divine nature on earth, or that he had the appearance of a human man, but he was just God walking around looking like a man. However they work it out, how, how, somehow many Christians believe that Jesus Christ was in his earthly life not truly God or not truly man. Beloved, when the Word of God became flesh, he did not cease to be God. God the Son took onto himself, in addition to his divine nature, flesh. And understand what John means when he uses the word flesh here. He does not just mean a human body. He does not just mean the meat on your bones. He doesn't just mean the blood that runs through your veins. The word flesh here means the entire human nature, body and soul. So that when God the Son took onto himself, in addition to his divine nature, flesh, he took onto himself a true, real human body and a true, real human soul. He became, in every sense of the word, he became the God man. One person with two complete, distinct, yet united natures 100% God and 100% man. As the ancient Chalcedonian Creed says, Jesus was perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, let me remind you, this is who God the Word the Lord Jesus Christ was in the Incarnation, and this is who He continues to be, even to this day. He was, at the moment of conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, made both God and man. He was born in the manger in Bethlehem as the God-man. He lived His life as the God-man. He died as the God-man. He rose as the God-man. He ascended into heaven as the God-man. He took His seat upon the throne as the God-man. He makes intercession for us today as the God-man. He serves right now as our minister in the heavenly places as the God-man. He will come to judge the living and the dead as the God-man. He will consummate His kingdom and the new creation as the God-man. And He will dwell with us for all eternity in the new creation as the God-man. This is the mystery of the Incarnation, beloved. That God the Son took onto Himself a true, full, complete human nature. And so He was and continues to be both God and man in two complete natures, yet in one person forever. 
This is what the word did. He became flesh. And as the word incarnate, as the word made flesh, John says then that he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us, beloved. The word of God not only became flesh, but he dwelt among us. Some of you probably know the Greek word here that John uses for dwelt is the same Greek word that we would translate as tabernacled. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. He quite literally pitched his tent among us. Now, I really favor that translation of John 1, verse 14, that Jesus tabernacled among us because I think it expresses a couple of rich, deep biblical truths that run the entire way throughout the sacred scriptures. First, when John says that the word tabernacled among us, I believe he's reminding us of the temporary nature of the first advent and Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Not that what Christ accomplished in his life and ministry was temporary. We know that that is quite everlasting. But his time here in the flesh during the first advent was indeed very temporary. Tabernacles or tents, they are generally temporary dwelling places for most people. They are not permanent fixtures. Consider the nature of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It was not a permanent fixture. It could be erected. It could be torn down. It could be moved around from place to place. And as finely constructed as it was made, the tabernacle was still mostly canvas. And over time, it would deteriorate. It would require maintenance. Everything at Everything a tent would need to keep it in good shape, the tabernacle needed. It was susceptible to the elements. And Jesus' earthly life and His first advent, beloved, it was indeed quite short, quite temporary. And His human body, it was indeed subjected to every form of misery that you and I are subjected to in this life. Remember this, beloved, from the time of His conception to His death, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus only walked this earth for about 30 years. That's a very short amount of time, even by human standards. And so John uses this word tabernacled to remind us of the truth that in His first advent, Christ dwelling physically among us was temporary. It's not the permanent dwelling place, if you will, that is to come someday. And this leads us then to the second truth that is expressed when John declares that the word tabernacled among us. By using this word, John is intentionally pointing us back to the Old Testament, to God's covenant promise to His people. He is in fact taking us the whole way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden. Now I've said many times that if you want to truly grasp I have a richer, deeper understanding of the New Testament, the life, the ministry, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, then you need to know your Old Testament. Here's a perfect example of that truth. To understand what John says when he says that the word tabernacled among us, we look to the Garden of Eden. 
There in the garden, we were told that Adam and God would walk every day in the cool of the garden together. Eden was a place where God and man tabernacled together in peace and in harmony. They dwelt together. Eden was, in a very real sense, the first temple of God on earth. And man had full access to that temple. Man lived in that temple. God even gave man stewardship over that temple until we sinned. Until we rebelled against God. Until we turned against our Lord. Because of that, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because we as creatures made from the dust dared to defy the eternal God, He banished us from that garden. We were given the boot. We were kicked out of that first earthly temple of, the, of our Lord. We were forbidden to live. We were forbidden to dwell in that earthly place with God. Banished, beloved, to the wilderness. And that, brothers and sisters and friends, should have been the end of the story, the end of the human race. It should have been the end of God ever making His dwelling place, His tabernacle among us again. He is holy. We are no longer holy. We are defiled. We are perverted. We are depraved. We are now unfit to ever again dwell with the Lord. But of course we know, and we say praise be to God, we know that that was not the end of the story. Because God, even in declaring the curse upon us when we sinned in the garden, He promised to send a Messiah, a Savior, who would come and deal with the sin of mankind, who would come rescue us from our sin, rescue us from death, rescue us from the devil. He would crush the head of the ancient serpent who tempted us into sin. He would come, set His people free, and make them holy again so that we could dwell with God. And you do not need to read much further along in the Bible before you start to see God making a remarkable promise to His people that He will once again, one day, make His dwelling place among us. The first place you clearly see that promise given is in the book of Leviticus. Chapter 26, verse 11. I know some of you are a bit skeptical of our Wednesday night Bible study in the book of Leviticus. But apart from being God's inerrant and inspired word, which in and of itself should be enough reason for you to want to study Leviticus, Leviticus has, perhaps like, unlike any other Old Testament book, Leviticus has amazing foreshadows of the person, work, and atonement of Jesus Christ. You want to understand the work and the death of Christ? Read Leviticus. And there in Leviticus, it includes the first declaration of this great promise. Leviticus 26, verse 11. The Lord declares, I will make my dwelling place among you. While our dwelling place was no longer with God. It was, in that, it was no longer in that earthly paradise. You see what God does? He says, you may have been banished to the wilderness, kicked out of paradise, but I will come to you, and I will make my dwelling place among my people again. 
And as you work your way through the Old Testament, you actually begin to see the Lord fulfilling this promise in several temporary ways. He never fulfills the promise in its ultimate sense in the Old Testament, but He does keep the promise in such a way as to intentionally remind His people of His promise, and He keeps this promise in temporary ways which foreshadow the final, ultimate fulfillment of the promise. You see it. You see the promise kept in the building of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that the Israelites built during their own wilderness wanderings after leaving Egypt. His glory, His presence, it was indeed there in the tabernacle. Once the tabernacle was complete and they took the Ark of the Covenant with its mercy seat and they placed it in the Holy of Holies, what happened? You read that the glory of God descended and hovered over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. God was dwelling in the midst of the camp of Israel. So that all throughout Israel's desert wanderings, wherever they went, the tabernacle went with them, and God dwelled with them there in their midst, slowly but surely leading them to the promised land. And then the day came. The Israelites entered into the promised land. They were no longer in the wilderness. And they built the holy city of Jerusalem. They built a palace for their earthly king. And then King David, sitting in his palace, thought, why should I dwell in a palace while the Lord still dwells in a tent? He desired to build a permanent house for the Lord. He wanted to build him a temple. The Lord did not permit David to build that temple, but he did allow King Solomon, David's son, to build it. And just like with the tabernacle, when the temple was complete, and Israel took the Ark of the Covenant and placed it in the innermost sanctuary, once again the glory of the Lord descended like a cloud and hovered over the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant so that God's dwelling place was there in the capital of Jerusalem, the, the city which was the center of life and religious worship for the people of God. God's dwelling place was there among His people. And King Solomon could not help but marvel. And he cries out and prays in Second Chronicles 6, verse 18, Will God really dwell with men on earth? To Solomon it seemed too good to be true, but it was true. God once again made His dwelling place there among His people. But even that great temple in Jerusalem, beloved, was not not the final, ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God would dwell amongst His people again. The day came when that temple was destroyed. Destroyed, by the way, because Israel did not keep the Sabbath. And Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians. The the Babylonians carried off the Ark of the Covenant. We have no idea where they took it. It's been lost ever since. And it seemed, I'm sure, that God no longer dwelled amongst His people. But in that Babylonian exile, the prophet Ezekiel rose up. He began to speak about a new temple. A greater temple. A restoration when God's glory would indeed return and He would once again dwell among His people. And the day did come when Israel was allowed to return home to the promised land. We'll we'll study this come the new year. We're going to begin a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. We're going to read about the restoration of Israel. And they rebuilt the temple, but the temple, beloved, 
This rebuilt temple, it lacked the grandness and the glory of the first temple, so much so that when the, when, when the generation of those Israelites who were alive at that point, uh, who, who saw the first temple, when they saw the new temple, they actually wept because it lacked the glory of the first temple. And in that rebuilt temple, there's one thing you never read about happening again. You never hear that the glory of the Lord descended and dwelt in that rebuilt temple. The ark was gone, was missing, the mercy seat was gone, the glory of God never descended into that physical sanctuary ever again. And this then became the reality for the nation of Israel for several hundred years. They were living in the land that God promised to give them, but they were not a free people. They lived under the Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, then the Roman occupation. And worst of all, they had a temple which paled in comparison to the glory of the first temple. A temple where God Himself was not among them. And even after Herod the Great tried to return the temple to its former physical beauty, those efforts could not ultimately restore what made the first temple so glorious. Because those beautification efforts could not bring the presence of God back. And yet God's covenant people still knew, that the, still knew the promise that God would make his dwelling place among them. And as the generations rolled on, those who remained faithful to Israel began to cry out, When, O Lord, when will you make your dwelling place among us again? And the Apostle John, the Apostle John writes that one day the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what happened, beloved, on that night in the city of David, in the stable occupied by two peasants from Nazareth. When Jesus Christ was born, the God man, the Word who became flesh, once again dwelt among his people. Imagine if you can, brothers and sisters, what, have been, what it would have been like to be a faithful Israelite living in Israel at that time. You knew that there in Jerusalem, on that temple mound, was a building where the glory of God used to dwell, but it has not done so since before Babylon conquered Jerusalem nearly 600 years before. And all of a sudden, a man appears. He's preaching with authority. He's doing signs and wonders, healing the sick, exercising demons, commanding the storms, raising the dead, and forgiving sins. And you realize, somehow you know, here is the Messiah. Here is the Christ. Here, then, is God Himself in the flesh, dwelling, tabernacling once again among us. Here is Jesus Christ, the very radiance of the glory of God, walking among you. You can hear Him speak. You can sit down and you can eat with Him. You can reach out your hand and touch Him physically. God's dwelling place in the incarnation was truly among His people. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That is what happened at the first Christmas. In the incarnation of the Word. When the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is... I hope you understand, beloved, how astonishing this is. How earth-shattering it is. How history-changing this event is. 
And throughout the course of human history, nothing has happened up until that point that could even touch the magnitude of the importance of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And yet, as amazing as it is, we realize, once again, that that dwelling was temporary. The incarnation was not the final, ultimate fulfillment of the promise that the Lord made in Leviticus that He would make His dwelling place among us. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He lived a life of about 30 years. He died, buried, rose again, ascended back into heaven. The word tabernacled, but it did not make its permanent residence, if you will, among us. Beloved, we need to understand this. As I said last week, the incarnation is not an end in and of itself. It is a means through which God's great redemptive plan will be accomplished and fulfilled. Christ dwelling among us in the first advent is a temporary thing. But it is a means through which the ultimate fulfillment of this promise comes. The truth of the matter is this great promise that God would make His dwelling place among us is not dependent upon a tabernacle, upon an earthly temple. And that promise did not end when Jesus ascended into heaven. There is a greater fulfillment to this promise. And the people of God already, right now, are experiencing the greater fulfillment of this promise that God is dwelling among us. Because, beloved, what did Jesus do when He ascended into heaven? He sent the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. God's covenant people. It's the Holy Spirit who goes with us, who guides us, who is slowly but surely leading us to our eternal promised land. God's dwelling place through the Holy Spirit, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's not just a a presence among us, beloved. It is God's presence in us. That's an amazing reality. Listen to me. Even if you were alive in Israel in the first century and you saw Jesus in the flesh, even if you saw Him and sat down and ate with Him and had communion and fellowship with Him as many disciples did, the reality is no matter how physically close you got to the God-man in His earthly life and ministry. You today, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, are by far much closer to God. His dwelling place is among you. It is among us, the church. And it is in you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God, in this moment, is keeping His promise to make His dwelling place among us, beloved the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is an amazing fulfillment of God's promise to His people. And understand this, everyone who comes to the Lord, repents of their sin, receives Christ by faith, receives the Word made flesh by faith, places their faith in the One who was born of the Virgin, in the One who walked on this earth, in the One who suffered under Pontius Pilate, and the one who was crucified, dead, and buried. When a person comes and places their faith in the one who rose victoriously over the grave, when a person comes, places their faith in the one who rose and ascended into heaven, 
And who is seated at the right hand of the Father right now when a person comes, places their faith in Him, receives Him by faith, they also receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You do not need a second baptism of the Holy Spirit where you begin to speak in tongues and roll around on the floor barking like a dog. You are given the Spirit the very moment of your conversion. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells you. It is true of every single believer in Jesus Christ. And beloved, be most assured that God's dwelling place will continue to be in you. The Holy Spirit will never depart from those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's the great hope and promise of the Gospel. That's the great hope and promise that the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us leads us to. It's an amazing hope. It's an amazing fulfillment of God's covenant promise to make His dwelling place among us. And I wish we really understood the implications of it more clearly. I wish we would think about it more often that we have the Spirit in us. God's dwelling place is in us. But beloved, as we close this morning, there's one more thing we need to understand. As amazing as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, an amazing fulfillment that God would make His dwelling place among among us, beloved, it will be even better than this. As I said last Sunday morning, when we reflect upon the first coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ, our hearts, our minds, they should automatically be led to reflect upon the reality of the second advent. This morning as we speak of God's dwelling place being among His people, we should, with eyes of faith, look to the great and the final consummation of this promise. A final consummation which will include not just a spiritual indwelling, but also a physical dwelling of God among His people forever. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Beloved brothers and sisters, that is the final fulfillment of the Lord's eternal promise that He will make His dwelling place among us. At the second advent of Jesus Christ, when He returns and makes all things new, then will our glorious Lord and Savior, the One who is truly, fully God, truly, fully man, will physically 
dwell with us for all eternity in the new creation. A creation where sin will never again put a veil between us and Him. He will be our God. We will be His people. And His dwelling place will be among us forever. And may God, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, hold us fast in that great eternal hope. Let your hearts meditate upon that truth, both now as we celebrate Christ's first advent and all the days of your life until the Lord either calls you home or Christ does indeed come and dwell among us again forever.